Well, this is Dead Stetzer Live, and this is every Saturday. We have helpful conversations to help you kind of understand, engage, live in the moment we're in, faithful ultimately to the gospel that we're on as well. So, so we're going to continue our conversations today, and the conversation we're going to have today, I think, is I think it's going to be a fascinating one. The title of the book we're going to discuss sort of got my attention right away. But let me tell you first about my guest. Uh, Benjamin Wendell is my guest. He is uh, an innovative and empathetic author and speaker, been pastor for over 20 years, has a Bachelor of Theology and an MBA, done some work in executive education at Stanford and at the MIT Sloan School of Management. It's a real fascinating background. We'll talk a little bit about that. He's written the recently released book just in April. It's called The Tide turning power of hope. And I'm willing to bet right now, before I start the show, that I'm going to get tongue twisted saying tide turning power of hope. But let's see uh, where that goes as, as as well. We're going to specifically talk about the the main headline of that is good catastrophe. Again, that's a that's a, a strange language. So we're going to get him to explain it. Good catastrophe, the tide turning power of hope. And because uh, I mean, catastrophe is defined by, as, you know, some event causing great and often sudden damage or suffering, another way to put it, is a disaster. So let's just start right there. First, ben, Benjamin, thank you for coming on the program, and let's talk about how could anything be a good catastrophe? Thank you for having me on the program, Ed. I think that the concept of a good catastrophe is something that's kind of foreign to our culture today. And when I was searching for a title for this book, I was looking for, you know, I wanted a word that represented that good can come from bad, something that shows a symbiotic relationship between our struggles, our adversities, the, the storms that we go through, and how we grow in life. And oh my goodness, it was hard to find a word that described that. It was in the writings of J.R.R. Tolkien that I found this, this term, catastrophe that he coined, E-U, catastrophe, meaning good catastrophe. And, you know, his whole life is very, is very fascinating. Um, he, he contracted a debilitating fever in 1916, and he was in World War I in the trenches, gets trench fever. I mean, this is the author of Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, and so forth. He's sent back to England because of a fever, and pretty much all of his friends and comrades die in that battle. So the fever was the bad, the catastrophe, and yet through the lens of history, if he never contracted the fever, he would have never been sent home and his life wouldn't have been spared. We wouldn't have some of the great literary works of the 20th century. And by the way, Tolkien converted C.S. Lewis. So, I mean, that's what I mean, his life is fascinating. So what did Tolkien mean by good catastrophe? Well, in his writings, he had this philosophy and narrative tool that when the central character reached a point where all seemed lost, no way out, midnight hour, it seemed hopeless. Tolkien said there would be a sudden turn towards joy. And I was captivated by that idea that when all seems over, there is this turn towards good. Well, turns out the backdrop of his life is literally a good catastrophe. 
And I believe we're living in an era where we need to fundamentally reframe how we see challenges, problems, and pain. Mm-hmm. Challenges, problems, and pain. And we're going to walk through that as well and kind of, kind of, kind of have this conversation. Now, let, let me remind, or I don't, I don't think I've said it yet. Let me just mention to our listeners that this is a pre-recorded program, so we're not taking your calls today. But one of the great things about that, it gives us more time to dive into what I think is a very important and meaningful topic to a lot of people. So many of us, we do struggle with, with suffering. We do struggle with what good can come from bad and, and does it always come from bad? And, and, and so you really have, um, you kind of jumped into this. You went to Job. I'm going to talk some about Job in just a minute. But I want to get a little of your personal journey because one of the things that people have uh, heard by now is that you're not from around here. So tell us, <laughs> tell us a little bit. Of course, you know, the assumption is, you know, Americans can't often tell the difference between Australian accents or British accents. But since you started talking about Tolkien, uh, may, many people might assume you're British. But, well, let's, let's tell them the actual story. Tell us a little bit about you, a little more about you personally. Yeah, so uh, I'm an Aussie, um, yep. you know, li- living in the U.S. I'm a pastor's kid. Uh, and then I've been a pastor myself for, for you know, 20 years. Um so I've, you know, the last 20, 30 years, I've been back and forth between the U.S. a lot. My oldest son was born in Portland, Oregon, where we worked in a, in a church there. And uh, most recently, I've been living in Southern California. Um, and I've spent the better part of, I mean, gosh, it's hard to even say it, Ed, but, but 10 years crafting this book. And I say it's hard to mm. say it because when you hold the book in your hand, it ain't that thick. <laughs> right, but uh, it take, takes a long time. So yeah, that's a little bit of background. Awesome, good. I do want to encourage folks to pick up the book as well. I think you'll, I think you'll find it helpful. Um, so um, you, of course, talking about Tolkien, and you know, I, I, I haven't introduced myself to the listeners who may be new, but I, I, I serve as the executive director of the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center for about three more weeks, and then relocate to Southern California to be the dean of the Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. But one of the things I love about Wheaton is I'm gonna miss about Wheaton is something called the Wade Center. And in the Wade Center, we have um, Tolkien's desk on one side of the room, C.S. Lewis's desk on the other side of the room. We actually have the the wardrobe that C.S. Lewis looked at as a child. So we think about the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Well, we have at Wheaton College the actual uh, wardrobe. But Tolkien's influence is, uh, is partly in language. You've already talked about this idea of, of good catastrophe. But of course, he tells that in his stories and more. But one of the most powerful stories, often people struggle with how to understand it, is the story of the life of Job. And you kind of re-examined the life of Job in your book. Tell us about that and unpack that for us. Well, firstly, um, that's a really cool story about the desk. Of, of oh, Tolkien you got to you got to come visit. You got to come I'm visit. Like, oh, it's my called, goodness. It's, yeah, no, it's insane. It's and you gotta you gotta come see it at some point. I know you're living in Southern California now with with me, but uh, but it's it's called the Wade Center. So people often it's named Wade's a donor. So people often don't know that it's the, the largest gathering of C.S. Lewis uh, artifacts. So I was I lived in England for the fall and taught at Oxford University, and so I went to you know we went to the kilns you know the C.S. Lewis home, and it was just funny. They're doing a tour with me and my students. 
And they're saying, well, you know, we don't have the wardrobe. That's over at Wheaton College. And we don't have this. That's over at Wheaton College. And so I kept smiling, like, probably, you know, too much. But, uh, but it was like, yeah, I mean, what a, what a blessing. If you love Tolkien and Lewis, and, and actually there's several other English authors there as well, uh, Dorothy Sayers and others, you got to come to the Wade Center. But anyway, that being said, <laughs> talk to us more about Joe. Yeah, well, it is a fascinating footnote, though, right? I mean, that Tolkien yeah. um, converts Lewis. And yet, you know, when I discovered that Tolkien's life was only saved by this fever, I'm like, wow, it's just amazing how sometimes what seemed like little twists and turns are, are so consequential. Uh, as it relates to Job, um, I'll say this. There really is a cultural moment right now where it feels like there are some dark clouds that have formed on the horizon of our society. I mean, a recent survey by the CDC revealed that 57% of teenage girls say they felt persistently sad or hopeless. It's just a massive number. And so we have this sadness and hopelessness resting upon our culture, especially as we look younger. So that pushed me back to look at this man that's became synonymous with understanding, you know, suffering, which is Job. I think in many ways, though, you know, with Job, um, I'll say this, firstly, that his life is not just about suffering. His life is an archetype of how God interacts with the human experience, both the good and the bad. But, you know, the kind of treatment we give this story, I've, I've re-examined. When I was raised in the church, the retelling of the story of Job went something like this. Job was a man that was living the good life, lost everything, right? He lost all of his ch children, lost his health, lost his business, had hope, and got even more back than he lost. I've come to resist this version of the story, though. Uh, in fact, it now almost strikes me as a callous retelling of, of this story. And, and here's why. I have three sons, myself, Ed. And, you know, you can't come to me and say, hey, we've got an offer to make with you. We're, give us your three sons. We're going to give you six different sons and newer sons in exchange for the three. I'd say, well, you can't give me six. You can't give me 600. You can't give me 6,000. It's not a mathematical formula. These are my children. This is my family. Um, Job never got back that which he lost this side of eternity. And mm. that may be a more uncomfortable version of the story, this unresolved pain that he would have lived with for his entire life. But if we don't have a version of hope that works when we don't get the endings we want, that can show up in anxiety and, and in imperfections and in trauma, then it's a very fragile version of hope. I think Job discovered something better than just hope gets me everything back. He found a hope that lived in the midst of his despair. And it's that hope, his hope in God, that gave him the virtue he needed to dream again, live again, start his family again, see a future again. 
So I see in Job this robust version of hope that pushes us to an eternal perspective. That if we think hope is this, you know, postcard version of hope, where if, if you follow God, and, and again, Ed, for me, I think I was just raised in this culture. Um, if, if you follow God, if you put hope in God, your life will be blessed in a way that looks like a postcard perfect life. And then mud gets thrown at that postcard. And we don't know what to do with it when imperfections hit or loss hits or a storm hits. So we need hope, but we need hope that is robust enough to speak to real life. And I'm saying this, perhaps hardship and hope together can do something for us that a problem-free life never could. So good. We're going to continue our conversation and talk more about what it means to have hope in the midst of the difficulties and challenges of life. Stay with us. Hey, we're back. Ed Stetzer Live. And uh, it's always strange to say Ed Stetzer Live on a day we're not live. But let me actually tell you why we're not live. I'm actually, right now where you're listening to this, I'm participating in the installation of a new bishop for the Diocese of Central Florida uh, in the Episcopal Church, in the Anglican tradition. Uh, Justin Holcomb has been my friend of many, many years, an evangelical uh, Christian pastor who now is going to serve in this role. What has that got to do with this conversation? Well, so I'm, while you're listening, I'm actually at Calvary Assembly of God participating in this, in this installation. There's using this facility. And while I'm there, I will be with the outgoing bishop, who's an evangelical bishop uh, as well. And he did the funeral of my sister. And the reason I tell you that is that when we talk about things like we're talking about today, uh, about catastrophe and about good catastrophe with the difficulty, my mind often comes back to like where I am right now as you're listening is that um, we came to Christ and uh, as, as my, my kind of student ministry age, and early on, some of the teaching I had received was that basically, you know, once I'm a follower of Jesus, everything's great, everything's going to be good, there's, there's no worries, we're all moving forward, um, and it's just going to be, you know, happy, healthy days. And it wasn't long after that where my sister was diagnosed um, with a rare form of cancer that would later come back a few years later and take her life. And uh, I guess I mentioned the, the, the funeral would be done by the person I'm, I'm visiting with while you're listening to this program. And part of the challenge was, for me at least, not saying this is where the church was, but for me at least, I had not engaged enough of the Bible other than sort of light, happy, peppy, everything's going to be great. And then you face an unimaginable catastrophe of seeing a young woman in her early 20s uh, lose her life to a rare form of cancer. And I got to tell you, I didn't have a lot of the answers. I, I didn't I still don't have the answers, but I didn't have any uh, framework in which to struggle or to experience hope or more. And so one of the things I like about the book is Good Catastrophe, The Tide-Turning Power of Hope by Benjamin Windle. It's one of the things I like about this. It doesn't kind of lean back or avoid some of these difficult things. Instead, it's really pretty pretty honest that it doesn't we – don't, we don't live a life – free of problems and difficulties and trauma and 
and more. But th- that's where hope seems to come in. So talk to us some more about and unpack some of the theme. Because, again, this is very pertinent timing for me. Like I said, I'm, I'm literally, while this pro- pro- program is playing, I'm, I'm even experiencing. I'll probably visit my, my sister's grave while we're there. Um, so, so where does hope fit into this? And how does hope frame around some of the most difficult times? Thank you for sharing your story of your sister. I think that that experience speaks to pretty much every listener whose homes and lives have been touched by pain, suffering, unexpected phone calls. Uh, As a pastor for 20 years, you know, I've walked with people through enough valleys in life to know that the lived human experience ultimately brings us to the point of challenge. And our Christian worldview on this seems to underprepare us. And when Gen Z are polled, you know, to give you an example of just how this disproportionately affects younger generations on why are you deconstructing from Christianity? One of the top responses is because they don't see how a good God can allow suffering to happen to good people. And you know, I guess there's a lot of things we could say about that, but for a pastor, I just look at myself in the mirror and I wonder if the the narrative that we've been presenting from scripture fits the shape of the world that people are experiencing and the complexity of what they are experiencing. So, you know, whether you look at the life of Jesus, who, as we all know, suffered physically, emotionally, and spiritually immensely on the cross, or we look at his disciples, or we look at the the writings of the Apostle Paul, which I think we urgently need to uh, return to, that, you know, Paul saw no incongruence from a worldview that in one hand he would talk about his own lived experience. And it was, you know, shocking shipwrecks and a thorn in the flesh that he tried to pray away and that didn't work and betrayal by his closest friends, just physical suffering, unexpected delays. He had no problem not watering that down and not diluting it. But on the other hand, he had this bright message of hope. And I think that's what I'm trying to capture in this conversation is we need both together because they work together in our lives. And ultimately, life brings us to the point of crucibles. And it doesn't have to come in the form of a mega, you know, catastrophe. It can be daily imperfections. It can be stress. It can be worry. It can be financial pressure. But we know this about life. And, you know, for me, I'm, a, I'm an old bold millennial (laughs) we exist (laughs) well you know my my grandma passed away last year when i would speak to her she was a wonderful lady you know when she would talk about her life she she didn't talk to me about when she went on a cruise ship or you know when she was laying by a pool at a resort she would talk about the adversities and storms that really made her you know fleeing greece uh, during World War II to find a better life in Australia, um, going through divorce, going through loss, going through sickness. I think we need to reimagine our Christian worldview as it relates to our human experience 
and understand that really our most game-changing lessons come from our storms. Hmm. Yeah, and, and it's interesting to me, Benjamin, and I don't really always get it fully. You know, we were talking off the air that you you mentioned earlier you've been living in Southern California, uh, not far from uh, the church that I'm serving here as a teaching pastor. Um, and, you know, I remember in the early part of this year, we did a series called On the Table. We looked at challenging, difficult issues. And the, Eric Geiger did most of the preaching. He's our senior pastor. But my t- assigned topic was, you know, where is God in the midst of suffering? How, do, is, how can there be a good God when there's so much suffering in the world? And, you know, tackled the topic, explained it. And it's fascinating to me because it seems like simultaneously people are drawn to that topic. I mean, you know, you talk about this. I talk about my own suffering. I just had a friend who died a tragic dra- death in a, in a plane crash just a couple weeks before, a small plane crash. And I shared that. And I, and I said, I don't have all the answers. But here's I trust the Lord. Here's where I find hope. And people respond to that so strongly because it's almost like everyone's experience. So then my question is, like, why don't we talk like that more often? It seems that for many times it's we sort of dismissing or maybe dismissing is the wrong word. We're just not engaging that. I mean, there's a reason you wrote a book on good catastrophe. You wanted to point people to a truth that's often overlooked Yet when we talk about it, people respond to it. What is this push away, pull toward relationship we have with addressing these hard issues? I think one way of addressing that would be to say, I think our hope narratives were crafted in the 90s and they need to be recrafted. I think especially for those that would have any form of pastoral you know, ministry or, or leadership or management in a, in a work context. Um, we, we need to tell a story about hope and resilient, and it needs to look different. Uh, we need a new set of markers that help us chart a course for a new world. Um, we can't prepare people for a world that's come and gone, but for a world that people are inheriting right now. So, for example, I think we need to debunk the idea of outcome-based hope. Outcome-based hope is hope in an expected change in a specific circumstance. Um, We need to decouple hope from the outcome. Um, A hope that's not in, well, God, if you will do these three things for me, then hope and faith in you works. Um, we, We need a bigger version of hope that exists in the midst of the human experience. But there's no way of doing that without us starting from an eternal viewpoint and saying, as Solomon did, life under the sun, like our lived human experience, is going to be filled with challenges. And if we see them all as blotches of mud on our postcard, if if we approach pain that way, we will run from it, we will suppress it. What if we saw it this way? In Australia, the land that I live on went through a devastating fire and we have a lot of eucalyptus trees, totally torched by the fire. I'm walking on the same ground a few months later, black ash, strong smell of smoke in the air, but there are these bright green shoots all across the ground. I was astonished to see how resilient the eucalyptus tree is. 
But here's what I discovered, that their seed capsules, it's better than just surviving a fire. They require fire to burn away the tough outer coating so that they can open and germinate in the freshly burned ash-rich soil. So think about the drama of this. The same fire that brings devastation is also the key that unlocks new life. And so it is for our lives. The fires, the challenges, the adversities, the imperfections are not there to burn us to the ground. Without the heat of the imperfections of life, there are whole portions of who we were created to be that will never find expression or release without the fires of life. We need to stop running from pain, avoiding pain and suppressing pain and recognize fires release our true God-given potential. Hmm. And I, and I, I, I want to talk more about that because I want to unpack that some because part of what I want to understand is, is, you know, how did we get to the place where we wouldn't assume that suffering would be a normal part of life? And I think for, you know, 2,000 years of Christian history, 1,900 of them, I mean, people just assume that, you know, everything, I mean, before 1900, just in history, everything was pretty terrible. You know, people got sick, people died at a much higher level, uh, people lost children in childbirth, people, you know, I mean, there, there were just so many challenges, you know, and now, you know, we're having this conversation right now, and I'm sitting in a room with lights and air conditioning and more, but there was a time when suffering, struggle was normative, and yet some of the most beautiful stories of hope, songs of hope, come from those times. Anyway, we're going to continue our conversation in just a moment with, uh, with Benjamin Wendell. We're talking about his book, Good Catastrophe, The Tide-Turning Power of Hope. And again, it's a pre-recorded show, but hopefully you're finding as helpful as I am. We're going to continue our conversation with Benjamin Wendell in just a moment. Hey, we're back at Central Live, continuing our conversation about, well, good catastrophe. And what does that mean? And how do we walk in the light of hope in the midst of those realities? Um, you know, just for the break, I was talking a little bit about how, you know, for a very long time, I mean, we just kind of, people lived with the expectation of difficulty and struggle. But the last few decades in the West, and where our listening audience will be, maybe we've been We've been isolated from that. We live in worlds that are, I mean, not free of ongoing difficulties and catastrophe, but people just, again, when before modern, you know, everything, I mean, it's 1900 years of Christian faith and practice where just thing, bad things happen at a much higher level. And so maybe we look back and say, you know, how do we rely on them? But we've gotten more used to um, the, 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 you know, the, norm, the normative experience for most people in our lives would be unimaginable to people 500 years ago for the luxuries and how we, I mean, and again, I'm talking about luxuries like things called electricity and cars because they just unimaginable. And yet perhaps that's moved us from how to understand, how to understand difficulties, catastrophes, and particularly how we deal with them and how we respond to them. So 
So, so that that being said, let's let's jump in and talk some about what that looks like. Remember, our guest is Benjamin Windle. He has written a book, the, A Good Catastrophe, The Tide-Turning Power of Hope. So we talked some about the state of the world. We talked about Job. And you mentioned in Job experiencing some about hope. But could you unpack more about what you mean about how hope fits into all this? Yeah, and you raise a great point. Like, why is it that it feels like, you know, in modern times, we've become less comfortable with a more gritty version of hope? And, you know, that could be because of our consumerism, um, our resistance to imperfections in our modern world. And I came across this little anecdote and it, to me, it spoke to that very, that, that modern dynamic. Leonardo da Vinci's The Virgin and Child with St. Anne. It's a masterpiece. This painting has been preserved for, for hundreds of years until something controversial happened. Uh, they they, in order to present a, a brighter, more colorful image to the general public, the Louvre, the magnificent museum in, in Paris, decided to clean the painting. But within that process, something went wrong. They overcleaned. And the minor flaws were unnecessarily touched up. So, you know, cloudy, dark shades now appeared bright and sunny. And when I read the story of this painting, uh, it made me think of how it speaks to us about more than just art. We live in a culture where we feel the pressure to present the best version of ourselves to the world. And we try and touch up the, the gaps, the flaws in our life, brighten the shadows to sunshine. And I think that we can be guilty of an overcleaned version of our lives or an overcleaned version of Christianity and here's what's important. If we make the dark areas lighter and we remove the shadows, in doing so, we remove the depth that is necessary in art. We need to be able to present the full spectrum of the human experience and see God at work in that. And that's why in the life of Job, he uses this concept vehicle of the scent of water as a very important concept in terms of how hope actually works. And in essence, in Job 14, he likens his life to a flourishing tree that was cut down. I mean, just brutally devastated where it felt like his life was a stump in the ground. Now, Ed, I don't walk around taking photos of stumps in the dirt. I take photos of beautiful trees. When you see a stump, you don't look at a stump and think, oh my goodness, how beautiful. It's like whatever life was there, it's gone. It's dead. It's over. Job says, that was my life. But he makes this incredible claim. He says, at the scent of water, it will bud and flourish again. Not the ocean of water, not the bucket of water, not even a drop. Hope is so powerful that even the smallest intervention of God in our human experience, causes new life and new beginnings. Hmm. Okay. So, so then we and we really we do come to the hope, the the intervention that the Lord gives in the midst of those difficulties. That's what you had mentioned with Job had the had the presence. You know, God was at work 
in all of those things. So the Lord's working in it, and we know that. I mean, right now we can we'd all quote, you know, God works all together, all things together for good for those who love Him who are called according to His purpose. We know that, but these challenges do grow us. God uses them to grow us in to make us more like He would want us to be. Um, how? What does that look like? What's the process of that? Yeah, and I think that's where one of the misconceptions for many people lies, um, that God is at work and God is turning things for us. It doesn't mean that every circumstance or imperfection in our life is being turned toward the way we want it. Because otherwise, a lot of the Bible wouldn't make sense. A lot of the story stories we read wouldn't make any sense. The turn is what God does in our heart and in our spirit in the midst of adversity. So what if we stopped seeing all of the problems in our life as things to erase and remove and rather saw them as an ecosystem of adversity in which God does his best and most profound work to grow us. So there's a good chance in your life that the deepest pain, the hardest challenges are simultaneously the things that grow you the most. That's what a good catastrophe is. It's a dual event where you're able to look back in five years and say, the same thing that brought me to my knees, covered my face in tears. I thought there was no way out. Now, when I look back on that same situation, that was the very thing that made me who I am today and grew me. That gives us a spiritual resilience and a grit to face the challenges that we're navigating right now. Yeah, I guess I would like all of those things. I'd like the grit. I'd like the character. I'd like the faith. But I'd like them without difficulty. So why why is that not a possibility? Can I not choose that path? Uh, well, I, I'm. if you find a way, Ed, would you please email me and let me know? <laughs> it certainly doesn't seem to be the lived human experience for anybody I know. It doesn't seem to be the way that I see scripture play out. And, and I guess if we get theologically, there's probably a lot to be said for the, you know, the human condition of sin and the state of the world and the fact that, you know, we're, we're living a temporary experience right now, life under the sun, this side of eternity and what we need is not just a hope for the here and now, it's an eternal hope. It's not an outcome-based hope. It's an ultimate hope in the person of Jesus, in the gospel. And to me, that gives a vantage point for the broken, fallen, you know, uh, world that, that we all have to navigate through here and now. Hmm. Okay, so I want to come back to, you had mentioned, I think, helpfully, kind of how we think about Job, Job's story, the book of Job, and more. I, I also want to think, too, like we mentioned, you mentioned your sons, you had three sons, you know, you, but you don't want to get back six sons as Job got back more than he had before. So, I mean, we look at the, that from the perspective of Job. It's written from the perspective of Job. But in the midst of all these catastrophes, sometimes you're the casualty. Um, and so how might we see... Like, we don't make it to the other side like Job did. Maybe, maybe we, you know, lost lost everything. And so when we don't see coming through the other side with a happy ending, how do we trust the Lord still in the midst of that? How do we have hope still in the midst of that? 
And I can relate to that, Ed, because in the last 12 months, I lost my older brother, you know, just 18 months older than me. Uh, you know, we grew up together super close and he went through a devastating cancer journey, lost two grandparents. In the midst of that, I've been learning myself. God, show me hope in the midst of hardship and God is at work. Yeah, I wanna continue our conversation and I wanna just unpack that a little bit more in just a moment as well. We're, we're having a really helpful conversation with Benjamin Wendell about his new book, Good Catastrophe, The Tide-Turning Power of Hope. Okay, continuing our conversation with, and just, and just kind of picking up where we left off, Benjamin, uh, Benjamin, you were talking some about your brother and how you walk through some of that. Keep telling us about that. Yeah, I lost two grandparents, made, went through major life transition and felt like I fell into a dark hole and didn't know how to get out. <laughs> and I'm like, I've written a book on hope called Good Catastrophe. I'm like, God, it feels like there's only catastrophe. And that seems to be the way that challenges are served to us in life. They group up into cohorts and they attack us all at the same time. One of the things I learned through this last year of my own life was the link between friendship and hope. And that for me has been so helpful. You know, when you think of the life of Job, and we've been talking about Job, he has these three friends. And they've become infamous in this narrative for kind of these three friends that showed up and gave terrible advice, right? Um, so they're kind of like the villains of the story. But just for a moment, think about this through, you know, a, a different lens. Job is completely alone. He's sitting in the dust of the earth, heaping ashes over his face. And through the horizon, through the dried tears, he sees the distant outline of three men. Hope walks into his life in the form of friendship. These, these three guys are not going on a vacation. They're going to be his friends. And I think that often we can see hope as a more internal private experience, something that just happens within me as an individual. I'm starting to see hope as a communal shared experience. For me to experience the tide-turning power of hope, I need others, or I put it this way, Hope needs human skin. So yes, uh, Job's friends went on to give some bad advice. But let's not forget this dramatic moment where they walk in. And maybe when Job was at the peak of his life, he had 300 friends. But only three walk into his pain. And I think that's the most special moment of the entire story because we don't know where Job would be without that. And they sit with Job in silence for seven days. What a beautiful picture of friendship. And we need that today in a lonely generation. A quarter of my generation say they have no friends. 79% of Gen Z talk about feeling lonely. And if you ask the question like, we have these huge rates of anxiety, depression, and more, and these are very complex subjects. But if we ask the question, what's at the bottom of the, of the well poisoning the water? Uh, I have a thesis that's firming up more and more in my imagination 
that the human condition of loneliness, these unthinkable numbers of loneliness, is causing us greater challenges than what we realize. And we need to see hope not just as a personal, private, spiritual virtue, but as a relational experience. If you need to let the light in, you got to let some people in. Mm. And I, I think that's a key theme, a recurring theme, actually, in the book is is that place for people in the midst of that. But you, you also talk some about building resilience into uh, the next generation, Generation Z. Um, and how, how, where is that? I mean, because when you talk about suffering, that's a big part of the connection to having resilience, finding hope. What does it look like to help build that resilience? And for, maybe for all of us, but particularly for Generation Z. I think for Gen Z, we have to recognize the complexity of the world that they're growing into and the rate of cultural upheaval. So if there was ever a generation that needs to understand the link between challenge and growth, it's Gen Z, because how we handle the challenges of life defines us more than anything else. So here's, the, here's a picture or a concept for Gen Z. I call it the bicycle. Now think about every time you get on a bicycle, Ed, I hope you'll be riding one in Southern California. Uh, <laughs> the weather is perfect for it, right? I know I was. It An e-bike, well, it's, it's the lazy man's bike, an e-bike. Think, think about a bicycle, two wheels. One wheel represents the divine, the good, the blessings, the favor, the joy. The other wheel represents the human experience, hurt, hardship, betrayal, pain. I used to think that if I could get rid of the second wheel, get, get rid of all of the challenges and imperfections in my life, then I would be happy and fulfilled. I've started to realize that our life is like a bicycle that constantly rides on both wheels. There'll never be a, a day that's so bad that I won't have some good. And there'll never be a day that's so good that I won't have some bad. So both wheels are always turning, the good, the joy, and the hard and the difficult. But here's the kicker. There's a symbiotic relationship between how these two themes work in our life. God takes the hurt. This is what hope does. This is the spiritual dynamic of hope. God takes the difficulty. God takes the imperfection. And he uses it to grow the good and the destiny and the potential within our lives. Mm. Okay, so so then how are we to think, or maybe maybe a better way to put it is, how are we to um, embrace and resist suffering at the same time? Because I, I don't want to, I mean, I, I don't want to rush into it and say, yay, suffering's awesome. But, but at the same time, I want to walk through and embrace what God has for me with it. So help us to have that, what that, does that posture look like? How does that thinking play out? Well, I think it's uh, unrealistic that any of us would wake up in the morning and, and say, you know, I so love challenges. God, just fill my life with them. Um, so it's human nature to resist and try and work it through. I heard this little story by the actor Michael Caine, and he talks about he's rehearsing uh, for a play as a young actor. Comes into a scene, and he's walking through the door and, and, and he trips, right? And um, 
the whole scene kind of, you know, falls apart. And the producer comes up to him afterwards because he's kind of saying, look, there was this problem and uh, the scene didn't work out. And he tells the actor, Michael Caine, use the difficulty. Use the difficulty. Use it, use it in your comedy. Use it in your drama. And I think we've got to approach life the same way. We're not asking for difficulties, but live long enough and we'll endure our fair share of them. The question is, do we see it as something that we've tripped over and fallen over? Or can we philosophically approach our lives and theologically approach our lives in a way that that difficulty that tripped me up, scarred me and hurt me, I'm going to use that difficulty for whatever that next scene is that God has in my life. I'll use it to my advantage. Fascinating. And we have just a little over a minute left. I just, for a lot of people, even these conversations are hard because they're walking through hard times. They're experiencing it or they know someone who is. What what would you point them to uh, right now as they're walking through that season of suffering? For every person right now that's going through a storm, a season of brokenness, a desert or a wilderness, um, I would want to let you know that you're seen. God cares even when it feels like God doesn't see and God doesn't care. God sees and God cares and God knows. And within whatever you're navigating through right now, as best as you can, if you can open even the smallest portion of your heart to the hope that's found in God, I'm believing and praying for you that you would have a scent of water moment, that even at the smallest intervention, something could shift and develop within your spirit and within your soul that will enable you not just to make it through this next season, but find something deeper, this spiritual dynamic of hope that actually causes you to grow and navigate through what you're going through at a much deeper level. Mm. And I think that's kind of a, a key phrase is, is to navigate at a deeper level. And I think I want to encourage, I want to come into you, uh, Benjamin's book. And again, it's a good catastrophe, the tide turning power of hope. And thanks to Benjamin, of course, for being our guest and for all of you for listening today. Um, as I, as I mentioned earlier, I'm in Orlando, Florida at a installation and uh, of a new, of a new Bishop. And uh, I don't have the opportunity to be live with you today, but we are back live next week. As a matter of fact, next week, we're going to have uh, Dr. Mark Job, who leads Moody Bible Institute and his son, Josiah Job, both friends, but we're going to talk about because it's Father's Day. We're going to talk about Father's Day and the joy of and challenges of fatherhood. We'll talk about that from from two guys who lived it and walked it together. Uh, let me thank my guests again, Benjamin Wendell, for joining me today. Thanks to the, our behind-the-scenes team here at Moody Radio, uh, Karen Hendren, our producer, and our engineer, Courtney Young. Uh, to hear today's program again, as always, you can go to edstetcherlive.com or the Moody Radio app. Uh, also, we're, we're active on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You go to Ed Stetzer Live, and you can just follow. You can see who's coming up as well. And remember that Ed Stetzer Live is, like all Mo Moody Radio programs, is a production of Moody Radio and a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.